Thank you for joining us today for the Oakwood Baptist Church podcast. This episode was recorded at the Home Builder Sunday School class, which Pastor Jones teaches at Oakwood. The lessons are taken from the book, The Ministry of Marriage by Jim Benny. Let's turn in our uh, Bibles, please, to the book of Proverbs. And we're going to look at a couple of verses here. Uh, Proverbs 21. While you turn there, we'll reference our verse in just a moment. But um, I recently read that only 5% of Americans set goals for their lives. Only 5%. Uh, That's pretty interesting uh, to think that we're just not setting goals for our lives at all. That's a good thought to have as we come into the new year, isn't it? Uh, that uh, really so, many, so few people are setting goals for their lives. Maybe we ought to, ought to think about setting some. Because along with that stat that f- only 5% of Americans set goals for their lives, of those that do, 95% reach the goals that they set or some portion of those goals. So what that's suggesting to us is if we set goals, you know, you're going to really set, you're going to accomplish some things in your life. So I wonder how many married couples set any goals for their marriage. I mean, I think it's unfortunate that a lot of people just get married and they're just like, well, I love her, she loves me, let's get married. And they don't, ha- they don't really think through what are, we, what are we trying to accomplish here. Now again, I understand that our marriages are not business propositions and business transactions. But again, what, what are we setting out to do? As we talk about goals, anytime you think about setting goals, it's very important that you keep them separated from desires. That's really significant. Anybody that talks to you about goals and goal setting, whether that's just in your business or your you know, exercise routine or whatever it is you're doing, you have to differentiate between a goal and a desire because there is a difference. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, a goal is an, is an objective that's under my control. Um, if it's not under my control, I, you know, it's really foolish for me to assume responsibility for it. And I think sometimes we do that when we confuse those things is we, we have a desire for something. Um, and we confuse it with a goal and then we think that I'm ultimately completely responsible for that. We're going to see in the Bible in just a minute that there's some things that we're just... They're not under our control, so therefore we can't assume responsibility for it. Here's another thought. A goal is something that I and I alone am responsible for attaining. So so very similar thought there. Number three, a goal is responded to by action. So a goal is something that I I have to do. I have to do this. Desire is different. A desire is something I would like to accomplish, but I realize that I do not have the power to achieve it Really, only God does. So one of our goals, we talk about, let's bring this into marriage. One of our goals, you can have a variety of goals, but one of our goals should not be to change another person. I mean, that that can't be my goal. You know, I'm going to marry this person, or I am married to this person, and I'm going to change them. That's a bad goal. Can somebody tell me why that's a bad goal? Especially based on what I just said. That's really not under your control, is it? Now, you may desire for your spouse to change. I mean, that's that's reasonable, right? Man, I really wish they wouldn't do this. I really wish they would be different in this area. I really hope they'll grow in this area. That's a desire, but that, that can't be your goal. 
Because, here's further why, a human's mind, heart, and will are involved. And when those things are involved, that's God's domain. And really, we can't presume upon that. Think about it here. Like, uh, let's, let's, let's apply it in, in a different way. Uh, let's talk about seeing people get saved. Um, I think our church ought to have a great burden and a great desire to see people get saved. I use that word desire. Listen, I, I mean, I'm excited. This morning we're going to be able to baptize three people that have been saved recently. And uh, tonight uh, we'll be able to baptize another. Um, and so that's a pretty, pretty exciting day, right? I desire to see people saved and baptized. But the truth of the matter is, is I, even though I have a desire to see people saved, I cannot make it a goal to see people saved, right? Like, oh, this year we're going to see 100 people trust Christ. I, that... To set that goal is, is really confusing a goal and a desire. What should be, if, again, I understand when we're trying to make dialogue here, it's impossible to read my mind. I get that, but uh, just a little bit of dialogue here. If I have a desire to see people saved and I can't confuse that desire to see people saved as a goal, what should my goal then be, though? If I can't control that people are getting saved, what should my goal then be? Yeah, to present the gospel, right? That's, that's something I can control. That's the action I can control. I can't control if people get saved, but I can preach the gospel. I can give invitations. I can knock on somebody's door. I can take somebody to lunch. I can write a note. I can pass out a track. Those are things that I can do. And so I need to make it my goal. So, so again, if our church desires to see people saved, maybe we can make it a goal of saying we're going to pass out 10,000 tracks. We're going to pass out 8,000 invitations to our open house. We're going to set up a kids crusade and we're going to preach the gospel and give an invitation. You see, those are things we can control. But somebody's... Somebody's thoughts, somebody's will, those are things I, I can't control. That's God's domain. So that brings us to, to verse in the Bible to, to lend itself to what we're saying. Proverbs 21 is where I asked you to turn. You're familiar most likely with verse 1. It says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the, uh, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Only God can influence somebody's will, emotions, and intellect that way. That, that's God's domain. And so if we bring it back to the application of our marriage, we are not really capable of changing our mate. Now, we can influence our mate, but we cannot change them. And, and by the way, you can say this about a lot of other areas. Uh, how about your kids? <laughs> now, again, I can influence them. We've talked about it here when we talk about correction. Listen, I can modify their behavior. I can. Now, I don't agree with behavior modification the same way Freud would, would uh, talk about behavior modification. But, but I can do some things to change their behavior. But I cannot change their heart. I can't. That's God's domain. And as a parent, that can be frustrating, can it? Because you're used to, you bring them home from the hospital, they're, they're 100% dependent upon you. So, you know, you should be telling them when to go to bed, when to get up, what to eat. Where to, you should be doing that. And as they grow older, you relinquish that more and more and more. But again, at the end of the day, you cannot, because you're used to having control at the beginning, you think you can control their heart and you, you can't. 
How, how about this? Like we, we carry that sometimes into with our boss. I mean, if you work for somebody, I'm sure there's some things that they do or don't do or, you know, something you wish they were this or that. But at the end of the day, <clears throat> you can have some influence, but you can't you can't change them. Uh, leadership, you know, it, go, it goes on and on. And so I say you're not capable of changing them, therefore you're not responsible to do so. Now here's the dangers of confusing a desire with a goal when it comes to changing another person. Here's the danger, and I really would like for you to think about this. One of the dangers is when you think it's your goal or your responsibility to change somebody, here's what you end up doing. You resort to manipulation. And that's not good for a relationship. You say, oh, I got I to gotta do this and I got to do that. And you're, you're, you're trying to manipulate and manufacture this in the situation. Here's another danger about it. And I think you especially see this when it comes to your kids. You take credit for successes. You understand, like, if your kid gets straight A's, that's why some parents are so, like, like, I mean, obsessive about it. Like, we see this in our school. Like, some kids will come in with some project, and you'll know, that kid didn't do that. Their parents did that. And, and it's why, because the parents, the parents view the success of that project as a reflection of themselves. My kid got straight A's. My kid scored the bucket. My kid did it, and it's kind of like, they, because they feel that it's their responsibility for their kids to succeed, then, then, then they are, they're the ones that are succeeding. Now, what's the flip side of that? That's my next point. What's the, what's the flip side danger of it? Right. So if my kid fails, then it's, uh, that's on me. But see, that's a dangerous way to think. Why is that a dangerous way to think? Yeah, your, your children have a free will. So this, this more so is seen when they become adults. Your kid as an adult, they're doing this and doing that. Did you have a responsibility to train them in the way they should go? Yes. And you, you can be judged based on whether you trained them in the proper way. But at the end of the day, the decisions that they make are, are, are on their head. But I've seen so many parents who are adults, who have adult children... And they, take, they, 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 they feel full responsibility for the poor decisions that their children are making. And I think that it's because when they were young, they thought that everything was, was their responsibility as far as their successes. The king's, hand is in the, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. You, you have to realize that and understand that. Here's the fourth thought. You will utilize coercion to make the person conform to the image you have for them. I think that that kind of comes full circle back from manipulation. But sometimes what happens is we, we try to manipulate things. And when that doesn't work, we come full circle around and then we just force things. And, and I, I've seen that in marriages. I've seen the way husbands and wives sometimes interact with one another. And they try to manipulate one way or another by, by giving things or withholding things or kind of being sneaky about things. And then at the end of the day, when that wasn't working, it's just like, I'm going to be mad, I'm going to bully, I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to punish you if I don't get what I want. And that's just, it's just confusing goals and desires. So let's, let's ask a couple of questions and I want to give you, give you some thoughts on the lesson this morning. 
When you think of your mate, your spouse, do you feel that it's up to you to change their thinking, feelings, or actions towards you? It's just an evaluation question. Number two, do you find yourself putting them under pressure to conform to your expectations? Number three, are you driven to intimidate and or punish them to get them to understand your needs? And again, I just think that those are diagnosis questions. Like, that's what you do if you go to the doctor, right? They, if you have a good doctor, they ask you a lot of questions. Right? I mean, they're going to ask you a lot of questions because they, they've got to find out what's causing this problem. And the same in counseling. A counselor asks a lot of questions. Why? Because we in America, I think we're bad at this in medicine. I think we're bad at this in counseling. We just want to treat symptoms. You know, I, you know if I have a headache, I just, I just want to take an Advil. I want to get rid of the headache. I don't want to think about why I have a headache. You know, maybe, maybe why I have a headache is I need to drink more. Do you, you understand? What, you know, I think we do this in medicine. I know we have a doctor and some nurses sitting in here, and so they can correct me if they're wrong. But I just think in America, that's what we want. We want to treat symptoms instead of curing problems. And I think we sometimes do that in counseling, and we do that in marriage. Is like, I don't really want to deal with the root issue. I just want to deal with the fruits. And that, that's, I see that all the time. Somebody just comes in and says, hey, I got this problem, I want to solve this problem. And said, okay, well, you've got to attack the root that's causing this symptom. And so in order to do that, we've got to ask questions. We've got to ask questions, ask questions. So we're asking this question, these questions. And so if you answered, when you think of your mate, do you feel that it's up to you to change their thinking, feelings, or actions toward you? If you say, yeah. Do you find yourself putting them under pressure to conform to your expectations? Yeah, honestly, I do. If you're driven to intimidate and punish them in order to get them to do what you want or get them to understand you, then, then you're probably confusing goals and desires. It's not wrong for you to want to desire something that's legitimate, that's reasonable, that's biblical, but you cannot confuse goals and desires, otherwise you're going to create frustration in your relationship. All right, so let me give you some practical goals that you have to, that you really should have in communicating with your spouse. Remember last week we talked about communication? We talked about the ingredients of communication and uh, uh, how, to, how to properly communicate. We, we, we addressed some of those things. And so here's some practical goals. Number one, never corrupt another. Never corrupt another. Now let me explain what I mean by that. You have your Bible open there still in Proverbs. Turn to Proverbs 18 and verse 21. And I, I just... I really want to encourage you to, to read the Proverbs. If you've never done that in your daily devotion life, read the Proverbs. Make them a part of your life. Proverbs are things, they're designed to be pithy little statements that you can remember easily, that you can quote often. And if you'll just learn the Proverbs, I mean, you should be able to just rattle these things off, rattle them off. Here, here's, here's a very good one, Proverbs 18 and verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. I mean, that first part is something that should just get, get in your brain and be a part of your life. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Understand, you, you know this is true. It says death and life. So what it means is you really have the power to hurt your spouse. If we just take that first one, death is in the power of the tongue. You 
have the capability and the power to hurt your spouse. And everybody in this room is old enough and lived long enough to know that is true. I mean, think about, this is not an exhaustive list, but the Bible really talks about um, some of the damage that you can do with your tongue, especially in the book of Proverbs. Now think about this. Um, I, was, I, I drove the bus to the, this ball trip, so I, I, you know I like to listen to podcasts. Tim Eggie said he didn't, like, he didn't like to listen to podcasts, and I, I know some people just don't, but man, I do. And so I was, I was listening to a lot of stuff. I was listening to some news while I was driving down, and uh, they said that gun ownership is at an all-time high in America now. And, you know, most of it's not for hunting. It's just things are getting violent and people feel that they want to be protected. And what's interesting has been like a 40% increase uh, in Democratic, uh, the Democratic Party's gun ownership. So I think that that's very, very interesting. But, you know, that's, that's just what I heard in a podcast that Tim Eggie doesn't listen to. All right. So, uh, but if you have guns in your home, and I would imagine most people in, in, South Carolina, or at least in this room, probably have some firearms in their home. Um, if you have guns in your home and you have children, uh, you, you teach your kids about the power of a weapon, right? Uh, I didn't grow up in a home that had guns. Um, my, my dad's not against them. He just didn't see any need to have them, and uh, we just didn't grow up around them. But Mindy, good grief, she grew up in Alaska, her dad kept a loaded rifle on the dashboard of their station wagon and offered, offered the kids a dollar if they spotted a moose, he'd pull over and try and shoot it so that they could have something to eat, you know? So she grew up a little different. She grew up around, around guns all the time. Well, you know, I, honestly, if I go to her, her parents' house, I, I really don't know how many guns my father-in-law has. I just know he has a lot of them. In fact, the last time we were up there, we shot an AR-14 and he, he owned it, it was in his closet, and he had never even shot it. Like, never one round shot through the barrel. And he's like, you wanna shoot it? Sure, you know, we're out there, you know, uh, and there's, you know, that kind of thing. So anyway, you gotta be taught, if you're teaching kids, kids about guns, right, you got kids in your guns, you, you start off, don't you, teaching them the, the, basically the negative power of a gun. I mean, that's where you start. Right, you're gonna say things like never, ever point this at somebody. Do not put your finger on the trigger of the gun unless you're about to shoot it. You know, like there are things that you, you, you always, always, always treat it as if there is a, a, a bullet in the chamber, right? There are things that you teach because you're trying to show them the danger, the danger of this, this device. Yeah, we'll get to the positives of it in a second, but the Bible even starts the way. Death is in the power of the tongue. So think about what, what it can do. Uh, and we don't need to turn to all of these places, but the Bible says in, in Proverbs 16 and verse 28 that the tongue has the power to separate friends. Do you, do you understand what it's saying? Like somebody can say something to somebody else about somebody and two people that were once friends are now because something that was said are no longer friends. The tongue has the power to do that. Now I want you to think about it for just a moment. When you get married, you, you're getting married really to your friend. And I've said this to you before, if you want to have a good marriage, study what the Bible says about friendship and practice that and I promise you, 
you will have a thriving marriage. How, how often has this tongue separated people who should have been friends? The Bible says this in Proverbs 20 and verse 19, that the tongue can expose secrets. You know, there are things that you tell your spouse and do with your spouse that, that are in confidence. And if you're not careful, you expose secrets. That causes a problem. How about this? Uh, cause deep emotional wounds. Proverbs 26 and verse 22. How many people are having marriage trouble and the emotional wounds are very, very, very deep and that's a result of, the, of our mouth. Proverbs 7 and verse 21 talks about how the tongue can encourage immorality. Proverbs 11 and verse 9 talks about how the tongue can destroy a neighbor. Now, again, let's not overlook the fact that life is also in the power of the tongue. I mean, come on, guys. I know guys are notorious for not being as expressive. But when was the last time you told your wife that you loved her? And you expressed your love to her. Like you, you don't just appreciate what she does. You appreciate who she is. And you, you in your limited way have, have tried to communicate that to her. Listen, you've got power in your, in your tongue. And you, you need to use it. Well, I'm just not very expressive. Well, then improve some. Come on, don't just be so set in your ways that you don't change anything about your life. Improve. Ladies, you know, a man wants to be respected. Like it or not, men have egos, and they're usually pretty big, and they're usually pretty sensitive. And so he wants, he wants to know that somebody in this world thinks he's awesome, even if you're the only one. Tell him. Here's what I respect about you. Here's what I appreciate about you. I think you're pretty awesome. Oh, stop. Nah, he means keep going. Right? You have the power of the tongue to build somebody up. To be kind, to be edifying, to be encouraging. I'll give you another verse from the New Testament. The Bible says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. I love that word let. And when I quoted it there, I... I Purposely emphasize, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. The word let means this. You have a choice. You can have the goal to not hurt your spouse with your tongue. And that's not just a desire. That is a goal that is within your reach. I can control that. Now what they do with my words, that's different. But I can control what comes out here. That's a goal. All right? So that's what I said there. Never corrupt another. Number two, edify your spouse. So let's kind of build on that. I've already said some things about that. But that word edify, does anybody know what it literally means, edify? I think I might have already said it. Do you know what it means? Build up. Yeah. Now here's a book, here's a, um, a proverb. Pleasant words are as a honeycomb. So it explains what it means by calling it a honeycomb. It's sweet to the soul and health to the bones. Here's another proverb. Heaviness in the heart of man maketh it to stoop, but a good word maketh it glad. Somebody's down and they hear a good word from you, it builds them up. It's like sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. I was around an old preacher once he was talking and he said this. Uh, it's kind of a weird, weird statement a little bit, but if you think about it, it's kind of a good old fashioned statement. He said, brother, let me pollinate you a bit. 
And what he was, what he was saying is, I mean, think about what a bee does when it goes from flower to flower. It does good things. It brings good things. And he's saying, let, let, me, let me give you something that's going to help you. And don't you appreciate that when people do that? They, they just, let me give you something that's going to help you. Let me ask you a question. And it's kind of a rhetorical question. You don't need to answer it out loud. But can God use human words to accomplish a work of divine grace? Yeah, He does it all the time. That's why we make such an emphasis on the primacy of preaching. It's not my words that today that you need to hear. It's God's words. But God can use my speech to proclaim His words that does a divine work of grace in our hearts. And the truth of the matter is, is He can use you to do that to everyone who hears you, especially your spouse. So make it my goal. I'm going to edify my spouse. Now, I don't know how you go about doing that. You might find different ways to do it. Be intentional about uh, every morning, I'm going to greet this way. Or at the end of the night, we're going to pray together. Or I'm going to write notes. Or I'm, going to be, I'm not going to let a sun set that I don't tell uh, them that I love them. And, you know, there's just, you, again, set goals. And the goal is I'm not going to use my mouth to do damage. And I'm not going to use, or and I am going to use my mouth to build them up. All right. And here's, here's a third one that kind of, we got five minutes here and we'll just kind of put these, these two truths together. And here's the th- third thought. Speak the truth in love. You see that in Ephesians 4 and verse 15, speaking the truth in love, right? It's not enough to merely just speak the truth. Again, I realize that. Some people pride themselves in holding nothing back, and that can easily become rudeness. We don't want to do that. But what we do need is truth that is balanced in love. Right? I I think sometimes people don't want to hear the truth. They just want to feel special. But what does that accomplish? How does that help? But I think you also need to be careful. The truth might have to cut like a scalpel, but you do want to be careful with that scalpel. You really do. So how can we speak the truth in love? Let me just give you a couple practical thoughts here. Number one, look for the good. Look for the good. Um, Somebody said, give a dog a bad name and he'll kill himself living up to it. And so you, you do have to look for the good in people. Uh, it's, here's the concept. It's like a bank. You, in banks, you make, you make deposits, you make withdrawals. Uh, ideally, right, you want to make more deposits than you do withdrawals, right? And so think of your speech as the same thing, especially with your spouse. You've got to make a lot of deposits. Now, what are those deposits? Those are compliments. Those are encouragements. But sometimes you need to have some withdrawals. That's going to be criticism. Sometimes we call it, and we should call it, constructive criticism. Uh, Sometimes they can be complaints. I mean, come on. We've all had a complaint about our spouse. But you you have to make sure that you're putting in deposits Otherwise, you're going to have a problem when you try and take a withdrawal. Does that make sense? I mean, now think about when you first start dating. When a boy meets girl, they're all deposits. I mean, you're not going to get the second date if you're like, you know what? 
Let me give you some advice about your makeup, sweetheart. You know, like, like, <laughs> like that's just not, that's not going to go well for your second date chances, right? Right, ladies? I mean, come on. And so you, it's, it's all deposits at that point. But here's what happens when we get married. When we get married, the deposits, they, they eventually stop. Unfortunately, they just, they seem to stop. And over time, you start withdrawing things. And that's why couples kind of get to the place where they, 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 they are, is they kind of stop dating each other. That's why you'll hear counselors say, hey, keep dating your wife. I mean, even if you've been married for 15 years, 29 years, you got to keep dating each other. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you go to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse and go on a carriage ride. And that's fine if you do that. But, I mean, it could be you eat peanut butter crackers in the park. I don't, I don't know. But you've got, you've got to stay connected, right? You've got to make deposits. Because when you're living together in a marriage relationship, there are going to be withdrawals that take place. And you've got to have the sufficient amount of funds in there to do that. All right? So look for the good. Uh, and this is going to be very similar. Frequent praise. Somebody has said that four compliments are required to offset one criticism. I remember years ago, this was a, a, a life lesson for me. And it just happened in ca- casual conversation. A friend of mine... He was talking about how he had a new neighbor move in across the street. And he went across the street and um, helped him do something, offered to let him borrow something, and he just went out of his way to talk to him. You know, in America anymore, that's just very strange, right? I mean, you hardly know the names of your neighbors. You don't even look at your neighbor half the time. I can't get hardly the neighbor across the street. I can't get him to look at me so I can wave at him. You know, it's just, it's just a different world in which we live in, right? And uh, he, he said that, he said, yeah, I went over there and this is what he told me. He said, I wanted to make sure that the first interaction I had with them was positive. He said, because if we live next to each other for a long time, I imagine there's going to be something that's going to be negative about a tree or a dog or a kid or something. He said, and I don't want the first time I ever talk to my neighbor, it to be something negative. And I thought, well, that's awful wise. I, don't, I, don't, I mean, I don't. I didn't think like that. I mean, that's just a, a, a great thought. What is he talking about? Four compliments for one uh, offset, one criticism. If you have to make a mistake, make it on the side of grace. You can be forgiven for being too gracious, but sometimes you won't be forgiven for loving too little. And that's just some practical advice. So let's wrap this up. As you strive to minister to your spouse, keep your goals in mind. Uh, You may feel that you are aiming at the moon in some ways, but at least you have an established target and you're making an effort. Because again, I want to remind you what we said at the beginning. 95% of those who establish goals reach some measure of them. And I pray the Lord will help us reach ours. So, start with a desire. What do I desire? And then set some goals to help you get to that desire and watch God work in ways that you cannot. Because the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turns them whithersoever he will. So keep those things in mind.